0: Because it may be again that the greatest threats to our national security are no longer kinetic outside the nuclear area and it may be that in fact our national security is much more endangered by other sorts of activities that just don't look like you know classic destructive activities that we're used to from warfare
1: this is something that i think about You know, when we look back on the COVID thing, why weren't we more prepared? When you start looking at the threat list of bad things like what we call black swans that can happen, that's on that list and we are not prepared for it. And again, it's another indication like cyber that our dependence on high technology has given us a lot of things, but it also makes it ourselves vulnerable, not just to bad actors, but to nature.
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May have Pleased the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, in a Daily Beast article published just recently on April 13th this year, 2021, Julia Davis wrote that the head of the Kremlin-funded RT and Sputnik News Agencies believes that Russia will invade Ukraine, sparking a conflict with the United States, that will force entire cities into blackouts. According to a White House produced readout of a recent call between Presidents Biden and Putin, the leaders discussed a potential upcoming summit as well as Russia's military buildup along the Ukraine border and ongoing tensions centering around Ukraine. To read more, links to the Daily Beast article and the White House readout can be found in our show notes. And tensions between the United States and Russia are nothing new, with recent findings of interference in our elections, just the latest high-profile development in our strained relationship. With no indications of relief on the horizon, what should we expect in the future? Will a cyber attack against the United States be next? Should we be on high alert? Are we ready? Or are we going to see a resolution of some sort between the two countries? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll be discussing national security. We'll take a look at the potential threat of cyber warfare, U.S.-Russia relations before and after interference in our elections, President Trump's involvement, United States involvement, international law, what kind of cyber protections are needed, and how the government and what possible solutions are going to be prepared for this. To do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our first guest is Claire Finkelstein. She is a professor of law and philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Law. Claire's current research addresses national security law and policy with a focus on ethical and rule of law issues that arise in that arena. In 2012, Professor Finkelstein founded Penn Centers for Ethics and the Rule of Law, a nonpartisan interdisciplinary institute that seeks to promote the rule of law in modern day conflict, warfare and national security. Professor Finkelstein has briefed Pentagon officials, U.S. Senate staff, and JAG Corps members on various issues in national security law and practice. Welcome to the show, Claire.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
2: And our next guest is Major Charles J. Dunlap, Jr. Charlie Dunlap is the executive director of the Center on Law, Ethics, and National Security at Duke Law School, where he's also a professor of law practice. He also served 35 years in the Air Force as a military lawyer before retiring in 2010 as a major general. He teaches, speaks, and writes on a wide variety of national and international security topics, including cyber warfare and cybersecurity. And his blog is Lawfire. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you very much, Greg. Well, as we uh, talk about this discussion and this Point of cyber warfare. Charlie, can you give us a little bit of background on the, on the range of cyber warfare and artificial intelligence and how all that relates to how Russia has attacked the United States?
1: Well, Craig, I, that's a, that's a, a broad uh, universe to try to tackle very quickly. But let me just say this. Russia really is one of the leading players in both cyber war as well as artificial intelligence. And they are sort of separate uh, disciplines, although they're uh, kissing cousins, shall we say. Cyber war is something that is, from a military perspective, we really don't isolate that from other types of armed conflict. And I think one of the big challenges, and I'd love to hear uh, Claire's view on this, today is determining when we actually are in an armed conflict where the arms are cyber. So far, the international community has really only been able to agree that when a cyber event has the same effect as a kinetic event, then it will be considered an armed attack and and we May find ourselves in an armed conflict in other words if because uh, through some cyber means uh, an adversary causes two airplanes to crash into each other that would be considered an act albeit via cyber means that would equate to a kinetic attack which would fit nicely with the prohibitions that would trigger in the u.n charter the right of self defense. Because, you know, in the UN Charter, Article 2 talks about a prohibition on the use of force. But Article 51 uses a little bit different language where it kicks in the right of self defense where there's been an armed attack. Now, interestingly enough, most of the world, due to a case called the Nicaragua case in the International Court of Justice, views that there's a difference between a use of force. That violates Article Two, and a use of and an armed attack under Article Fifty One. They they require uh, greater severity and so forth. The U.S. interestingly enough, Harold Coe, Clary, I think you remember when Harold Coe gave this speech.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Where where he reiterated actually what had been a longstanding U.S. policy that says essentially that the U.S. considers any use of force, whether it's in violation of Article Two or Article 51, to trigger the right to self-defense and that its severity only limits what you can do in response in terms of it has to be proportional to whatever attack, so to speak, that that you suffered. Accordingly, and probably getting more to the point, is you'll see a lot of things in the press about a cyber attack that the international community would not necessarily – characterize that cyber operation as an attack within the meaning of like the law of armed conflict or the U.N. charter. So, for example, historically under international law, something like espionage, no matter how great it is, even if they're taking hundreds of millions of records, as we saw a few years ago in the OPM, or even and we all should talk about solar winds, whether that's an attack or not. But the OPM is a good example. I think 32 million records were taken. That isn't really an attack because you're not talking about physical destruction. Now, I think we can have a a good, what I tell my students is a three-beer conversation as to whether, given the enormous capabilities and scale that cyber can, can do, do we need to rethink that? we need to rethink things like espionage you know which never really contemplated being able to walk off with records of 32 million people of another country as to whether or not in the 21st century we ought to rethink what those uh, what those measures are that would trigger the right to self-defense under the UN charter
2: well we've had a recent example of a kinetic attack there's been uh, The centrifuges in Iran's nuclear facility were shut down. Electrical connections were turned off. They blamed it on Israel. Certainly that falls in the kinetic attack. But Claire, what about the solar winds attack and what happened today? I mean, essentially, there's been a a revolt by the Biden administration and tossing out some diplomats. What does all that mean?
0: Well, it's pretty extraordinary and extraordinary for Russia whose head is spinning at the moment to go from the Trump administration to the Biden administration because suddenly we have sanctions for things that the Trump administration would not have imposed sanction did not impose sanction, but this is a very clear response to the to the solar winds hacking which was a a hacking of multiple government agencies on an absolutely massive scale. And that had been in place for actually quite a long time. Um, it allowed uh, Russian intelligence to place what's often characterized as back into the computer networks of multiple, multiple agencies, including agencies, uh, the Department of Energy, that has a role in the uh, nuclear launch. And so this was a, a, you know, a hack of proportions that we really were not anticipating. I think we were not aware of the sheer extent of Russia's capabilities. And coming out of the 2016 election, we were very focused on Russian influence, Russian you know disinformation and so on, and saw the hacking piece as a little bit more minor. But here, in fact, we see that Russia's capabilities are more extensive than we realized and that we have to reckon with the vulnerabilities of our own system were also much greater than we, than we thought. I'd like to go back and just respond to a few of the very, very interesting things that, that Charlie spoke about and his, the three-beer conversation that he referenced because, in fact, I agree with him that the whole criteria of kinetic damage – for determining whether or not something has been a cyber attack is something that we might want to start reconsidering, something about which there's a lot of debate in the kind of cyber war community uh, among national security experts. The real question there is, does there have to be kinetic damage in order for us to consider something a cyber attack? Now, in some ways, this is just a, a kind of vocabulary question but it matters, and it matters a lot for all the reasons Charlie gave, which is it matters how we char- how we characterize the attack or how we characterize the interference will affect whether or not we, under international law, can respond with force or can respond with countermeasures. And so it's very important for us to figure out whether or not something can count as an attack if there were not if there is not an overt impact. So we really have that case with solar winds because we have a, a situation in which the, the Russians accessed a lot of information. They put a lot of back doors in place for future use. They you know showed the extent of their ability to penetrate our systems, but yet there isn't any that we have identified any overt kinetic damage. So do we characterize that as an attack or not? I'm myself of the view that we have been too fixated on the kind of, you know, break lots of stuff and destroy people as a as a model for what counts as an attack, especially when we see that some of the most damaging things that foreign countries have been able to do to us by way of cyber has not fit into that model. And so, you know, we have to look at the theft of information as one of the ways that countries can really damage us? Are we content to still keep information theft under the heading of, of covert operations and say, you know, there's no attack going on?
1: That's a very good question. Charlie? I very much agree with Claire, and she she's making an important point here. We're kind of at an inflection point, I think, with the law in relation to cyber attacks i guess the the other side of it is is that when you when you don't characterize it as an attack and it, obviously the the Biden administration has been very careful in its response to stay below the level of a even a, an equivalent kinetic a cyber response that would be equivalent to a kinetic one so in other words the Biden administration doesn't seem to be considering this as an attack within the meaning of international law, but it's responding with that below the threshold of use of force. And what's interesting about that is that uh, there's two things interesting. One, Russia has been playing in what they call this gray zone, and it's not just in cyber activities, but other kinds of activities where they go right up to the line in various things right below what they perceive to be the threshold. So they're trying to establish the threshold. Now, you might think, well, okay, well, we need to establish a norm that, you know, this kind of thing, we're going to consider it a use of force, an armed attack against us. But the other side of it is, we are a superior cyber power ourselves. And whatever norm we establish is going to be, you know, applied to us. And it may be, I don't know, just speculating. It may be that the U.S. has planted backdoors in Russian systems. In fact, I think that there was some news reports to that effect that we've planted things in the Russian power grid. And it may be that that is the way the the United States believes that cyber norms should develop.
0: Yeah, Charlie, let me just jump in here and say that you're absolutely right, uh, hit it right as far as I'm concerned, nail on the head, to talk about the Russians intentionally staying right underneath the line. It's a kind of reverse engineering of our own international legal standards because what happens is in sort of low-intensity conflict, what we have is the Russians will do as much as they possibly can but make sure to stay under the line that would trigger any right of response on our part under international law. And wherever we put the line, they may do that. But that really, in a world of cyber, gives us reasons to to rethink how we categorize these things because it may be, again, that the greatest threats to our national security are no longer kinetic outside the nuclear area. And it may be that, in fact, our national security is much more endangered by other sorts of activities that just don't look like you know, classic destructive activities that we're used to from warfare. For example, if the Russians were to take out our power grid through some kind of you know, virus or some other sort of attack – we could have thousands, if not millions of people die. You know, all it has to, to be is a, a really, really hot day. We know from blackouts in major cities in the summer to have a lot of people who depend on air conditioning and life support systems and so on to die. And so there are lots of ways to attack us, which would not count as kinetic normally, but would produce massive loss of life. So I think it's time for us to rethink these categories. And the big question, the big legal and ethical question that we confront here is whether or not if we anticipate a major cyber event, I don't know whether to characterize it as an attack, but a major cyber event that we know could result, though indirectly, in terms of loss of life, are we going to Call that an attack, and do we think that it rises to the level of either Article 2 or Article 51? And if only Article 2, what sorts of countermeasures are we prepared to recognize under international law as legitimate? Right now, we do not recognize something that does not rise to the level of an Article 51 attack as justifying kinetic force in return.
2: Charlie, I want to turn to your military experience for a moment. We've had the head of the Kremlin, uh, Sputnik news agencies tell us that uh, we're going to be in a, in a war because of Ukraine, cyber war, as well as potentially something on the ground. There's been a buildup of troops, as you said, Russia's marching the line on bringing tanks and so forth to the border in Ukraine. What's going on with the aspect of with, with that aspect of it? Are we is it coal that they're fighting over? What's the reason that somebody wants the Donbass area of of Ukraine?
1: I think it has a lot to do with the psychology of Putin and, and many Russians in general. They feel that they've gone through a humiliation. They're trying to regain their their empire. And in the near term, I quite frankly think that they are testing Biden and they are seeing what the reaction is going to be. They've moved something like 85,000 troops uh, into near the border of the Ukraine. Their argument is in this Donbass region of the Ukraine, there are a lot of ethnic Russians. Uh, The same argument they made in Crimea, you know, they do this (laughs) passportation <laughs> they mail passports to people to make them Russian citizens so their argument is that they're they're protecting ethnic Russians who they claim are being harassed and, and under uh, unfairly treated by uh, the Ukraine government. I don't think that we'll actually see armed conflict now whether we have cyber events, I would hope not but I would not rule that out. And I do think that that they're going to test Biden. And what makes it particularly complicated, as Claire said, how they move up to the very edge, they're looking at Article Five of the NATO Charter. The Article Five is NATO's equivalent of Article 50, uh, 51 in the UN Charter. It triggers the self-defense. And what makes it so complicated? For NATO is you, you generally have to have the agreement of all, the, all these different countries with different agendas and so forth. They also have an agenda, I would suggest, of weakening NATO. Anytime that they can show that, that NATO has controversy or, or has, is going in different directions and isn't speaking with one strong voice, to them that that is a good thing. But we shouldn't look at just the troops and cyber. There's been a lot of activity in the Black Sea because the U.S. and and other countries take the position that we can go into the Black Sea anytime we want. Uh, the Russians kind of see that as their own sea. So they've been buzzing, aircraft, buzzing ships with aircraft, very dangerous maneuvers. So we're, we're in a situation where we could have an incident on the ground or one of these buzzing situations that would then trigger some kind of response. And that response could be a cyber one.
2: Two ships have just moved into the Black Sea, two United States ships. Are we being provocative?
1: What we're doing is we're asserting our rights under international law. And there's a a larger program that's around the world, it's called the Freedom of Navigation Program, where the U.S., when, when a country does something with the high seas and with the oceans that we believe is violating international law, we deliberately go there to demonstrate that we don't believe it's that way. And it it also erodes the possibility that some sort of customary international law or acceptance of this excessive claim under the UN Law of the Sea Treaty might somehow mature into some form of customary international law. So I do think that that we're in a, a very tense situation. Uh, what would really trouble me, and I'd be interested to hear Claire's view, it's not impossible in my mind that this kind of rapprochement between China and Russia— that the Chinese might seize upon the opportunity to have us preoccupied with something going on in Russia and the Ukraine, to do something in the Taiwan Straits, or and North Korea, of course, is always watching these activities, and they might do something provocative. All this, I think, is is a test of President Biden, and we need to uh, think through that and make sure that we're we're prepared to respond in a way that that might address threats on multiple, very serious threats on multiple fronts. And just to foot stomp something that Claire said, she she mentioned how dangerous it would be for a a really massive cyber attack, especially against the electrical grid. And Ted Koppel, believe it or not, wrote a book about five or six years ago. I think it's called Lights Out or something like that. And he quoted sources that said that 90% of the U.S. population would be dead in like two years if the electrical grid was down for that period of time because there are so many activities that are linked to that. And the scary part about this is that it's <laughs> the threat is not just from Russians or Chinese. You know, we could have a solar storm that could generate what we call an EMP pulse, electromagnetic pulse, that would have a, a horrific effect. And this is something that I think about you know, when we look back on the COVID thing, why weren't we more prepared? When you start looking at the threat list of bad things like what we call black swans that can happen, that's on that list and we are not prepared for it. And again, it's another indication like cyber that our dependence on high technology has given us a lot of things, but it also makes it ourselves vulnerable, not just to bad actors, but to nature. And we saw a little bit of that in Texas this winter, didn't we? Uh, Where climate change froze up an unprepared electrical system. You know, next time it could be worse or longer or repeated. So we have some work to do on the technological end.
2: Claire, I feel like I'm reading a Tom Clancy novel with multiple plots and multiple threats all going on at the same time. How do we get ready for this?
0: Well, I think one thing that I'd like to emphasize here is, and it comes out in Charlie's examples as well. Scholars and national security practitioners have for a number of years thought about cyber increasingly and, and focused on it increasingly, but but the way that we all started thinking about this was as though there's cyber war and then there's kinetic war and the two are not gonna mix. But that's obviously wrong. And we all have to start thinking more flexibly about the kinds of threats that U.S. national security is likely to face and, and global security, because more and more these techniques, uh, and we can call them hybrid techniques, are being mixed. So one of the things that we need to think about, for example, is attacks on our satellites. Now, You know, we use satellites for a whole variety of things, but most people don't realize that geopositional logistics, particularly for the Army, is one of the most important things that we depend on satellites for. And you can take down a satellite in any number of ways. So, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, you know, could there be a a war in outer space? Do we really need a space force? But what you don't realize is that, of course, you know, our space security is incredibly dependent on cyber, and that means that our kinetic forces are incredibly dependent on cyber. So, you know, just about everything is dependent on cyber, so we can't really say that there's one kind of warfare over here, which is outer space war, and then there's another kind, which is cyber, and then there's a third kind, which is kinetic, and and of course, the launch of of our nuclear codes is dependent on cyber also. So we have to start thinking in much more complex ways about the sorts of national security threats that that we face and add to that things that don't count as attacks, which is sort of human infrastructure, namely informational warfare. And cyber is mixed up in that, even though it's not actually a type of war and and will never cross the Article 51 self-defense threshold, But still, as we've seen, you know, informational warfare can be hugely damaging, especially to democracies, which are, you know, pride themselves on open information. So I think national security scholars and practitioners have a lot of evolving to do in terms of how we think about the threats and our classificatory categories should evolve with our increasing sophistication about how to understand those threats.
2: Well, Charlie, we just look like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this opportunity to invite both of you to share your final thoughts as well as your contact information. But as you do, I think one of the questions I'd like to have you talk about is be this readiness. And recently, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said it's going to stop publishing paper charts for ships and, and navigation. We're going to rely solely on electronic things at this point.
1: Are we ready? Well, that's a horrible idea. I'm, I'm distressed to hear about it. I think that we need to do more in the military side. Anyway, we used to do what we call com out exercises, where we, especially in the nuclear, where where we would launch planes without depending on on traditional communication routes. But I think uh, my my parting comment would be that we need to start rethinking what warfare looks like because warfare in the future, especially because of cyber, the home population is not going to be insulated from it. We may still be able to insulate them from, you know, a lot of the kinetic effects that we might see in other types of conflict, but it's hard for me to imagine that any kind of conflict with a, with a sophisticated foe, even, even a very, not necessarily limited to near-peer competitor, a sophisticated foe is going to have impact on the U.S. population perhaps in violation of the law of war, but many of our adversaries aren't too concerned about that. So I do think that decision-makers are really going to have to think through, what do we need to prepare for? Because it is a little bit of a zero-sum game. If you use resources, if everything goes to preparing for the next pandemic, And nothing goes for losing EMP or, as Claire points out, GPS. GPS is enormously, not just for the Army, but for the Air Force. You know, GPS has a lot to do with how our precision targeting systems work. There are backup systems, but they're not nearly as precise as uh, GPS. So decision makers are going to have to make these judgments. But I think we have to have a very frank national discussion. This is why I so much appreciate, Craig, that you invited us onto to the, the show. And so I'll end with that. I'll leave my, my contact information. I'm, uh, it's on the web. I don't generally answer my office phone. It all goes to voicemail. But my email is law.duke.edu. And I'd invite you to take a look at my uh, blog, Law Fire, and if you just Google law fire, you'll be able to get to it, to the homepage there. And, um, and you can subscribe to the blog. And I hope that you do. And I'm hoping yeah. Professor Finkelstein writes a post for my blog.
0: <laughs> I would love to do that, Charlie. I guess my closing thoughts are complementary to Charlie's, which is that we need to reduce our dependence on technology in Some important ways. And we need to, I mean, that sounds like a strange thing to say in the world of technology that we live in. But we have to stop thinking that technology is going to solve all our problems and also stop thinking that technology is the source of all our problems. So, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we need to reduce our dependence on cyber, not increase it anything that depends on cyber will always be vulnerable and we will never be able to close all of the gaps in our security systems for a cyber dependent system second of all we need to increase our educational and informational base for our population because what makes us vulnerable what makes us vulnerable is not the technology by itself but how we use it Therefore, it's critical that people understand the foundations of democratic governance. It's critical that we have civics education, right? We need a return to civics so people understand what we need to do to protect our democracy. And it's critical that we shore up what I would call human security, which is the rule of law and ethics, right? So we need to make sure that we are not sort of hemorrhaging our own security and damaging our own security because of human moral mistakes, human legal mistakes, giving our adversaries information that will enable them to attack us. And I think it's in some ways, the idea, we've long had this idea in in national security that there's going to be some piece of technology that will solve it. So we think, you know, for example, well, the solution to the vulnerability of cyber is automated systems and autonomous systems that can react more quickly than human beings can. But that raises a whole host of other problems uh, that we see with autonomous weapon systems, robotics, and so on. And and I know many roboticists who were the first to point out those vulnerabilities. And we're just going to spend a lot of time chasing around our own technological vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that we ourselves have created. So the solution to that is not to completely eschew technology, but make sure that our human security matches the level of sophistication of our technological security.
2: And your contact information, how can our listeners reach out to you if they'd like to?
0: Best for me is Twitter. And uh, my Twitter handle is cofinkelstein. Finkelstein. C-O-F-I-N-K-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. But you can also send me an email at law.upen.edu. Great. Well,
2: as we wrap up, I'd like to thank both of our guests, Professor Claire Finkelstein and Major General Charles Dunlap. Claire and Charlie, it was a pleasure having you both on the
0: show. Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at legal Talk Network.